0: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
2: Uh, Okay, time to get started. And in time-order fashion, we're going to start at the beginning of the internet. Uh, So this first session is called This is for Everyone, The Hopes of the Pioneers. So please welcome to the stage, your chair, the UK editor of Vanity Fair, Henry Porter.
3: Okay, so let's move to the first session. Uh, On my right, uh, actually, I'm the only person who does need an introduction. The rest are so famous and successful, they don't. But anyway, I'll go ahead. Um, Martha Lane Fox, entrepreneur, tech evangelist. She's a crossbencher peer and is currently chief of... hmm? Not very cross. No. (laughs) No. She's the Chancellor of the Open University, head of Go On, which aims to help millions more people and organisations get online. I recommend her YouTube video of the excellent Dimbleby lecture this spring, which I think was one of the best I've seen. Then Ronan Don on my far right, CEO of Telefonica UK, which is known as O2, who is also on the Guardian Media Group board and therefore is a pal of Allen's, and was on the inside of the paper's business when the Snowden revelations were taking place. My great friend, Alan Rusbridger, editor of The Guardian until last week, and soon to be, or maybe already, head of Lady Margaret Hall. Um, he has fought a number of very famous battles, no- notably on WikiLeaks and um, Edward Snowden case, obviously, most recently. And the paper was, under his editorship, awarded the Pulitzer Prize, which is obviously extraordinarily rare in Britain. And Cory Doctorow, a brilliant and articulate science fiction author, campaigner for freedom um, on the internet, and co-editor of Boing Boy. So, first question to you all. We're starting at the beginning. Martha, when did you first see the web?
4: The first time I saw the internet, I remember very clearly, went to a beautiful old university, got put into the smallest, most modern room at the top of a building you could ever imagine. It's a bit of a disappointment, but in walked a guy called Toby who introduced himself to me and said he'd just come back from Japan and he showed me on his small handheld device what the weather was doing in Tokyo and what the weather was doing in San Francisco. It seemed baffling to me, and that was the internet.
3: Did you, did you predict anything when you saw it? Did a penny drop?
4: <laughs> I didn't predict that I would end up working anywhere near it. <laughs> no, I didn't.
3: And Ron, what about you? So
5: the first, uh, first time I really got close to the internet was actually um, uh, way back when, in all of 2002, um, the first ever, what was called a wireless PDA, was a thing called the O2XDA, and was the forerunner of all of our current smartphones. And actually, um, it was called XDA because it was the crossover of voice and data for your digital assistant. And this was before we had a Facebook, a Twitter, a MySpace, any of these. And And you shopped
4: on (laughs) lastminute.com.
5: So this was the first time you could take this away on mobile. And you suddenly started to see the transformation that now is. A lot more people access the Internet on mobile than they do on fixed. 4.2 billion people around the world, which is more than have access to clean water or a toothbrush it's amazing I think I know
3: when Alan did see the internet because I was working in New York and somebody showed it to me in 92 93 and then I think it was Mosaic or Netscape Navigator and I think I came back and told you about it and before I knew what you were on the web and setting up the Guardian website is that
6: about right more or less it was a... in 1993 um, and uh, I, I went to America and found this thing called the internet which was a great surprise um, I remember going to, there was a a company called Night Ridder that had a a lab down in Boulder, Colorado Uh, and we went all the way down to Boulder, Colorado and all they had was a piece of wood um, about that size. It was very much like an iPad Um, and they said one day we will read all our newspapers on that and I was completely convinced. I don't know why because it was just a piece of wood Um, (laughs) but they were and They would obviously been closed down and abolished long before anybody invented the iPad, but they were strangely right. But, Corey, you are slightly different from the rest
3: of us. You're sort of early adopter doctor from the age of five.
7: Uh, six. So six, my, six. my father was a computer scientist who was uh, doing a degree at the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education <laughs> in Toronto, where there was a PDP-11, a DEC computer, and he brought home an acoustic coupler, which is this... Um, It looks like a sex toy for telephones, it has two suction cups and you dial up on a rotary dial phone and once you hear the scream, you put it and they scream at each other. Uh, It didn't have a screen, it had a a roll of paper and a daisy wheel printer, so you could only compute until the paper ran out. Uh, My mom, who was working in an elementary school, used to bring home rolls of paper towel from the loo, so we'd get a thousand feet of brown paper towel and you could compute both sides of it and then you were done.
3: But I would love to know when, I mean, I think for me, the penny did take a long time to drop. Uh, I don't know about you, Martha. When was the last minute dot com founded? Well, 1997. Six, seven.
4: Seven, eight. Yeah, six, seven, eight. I think after my 1992, that was with my friend Toby's experience, then I ended up quite by chance working in a company that was looking at the media and telecom sector. And that was when my very first piece of work was called What is the Internet for BT? In fact, you could probably do the same piece of work now. But uh, ah. the, um, that was when the penny dropped for me yeah. because I suddenly could see it from a completely different perspective.
3: Commercial or in terms of society?
4: At that point, probably more I was thinking commercially, but um, sort of te- I was a techno-utopian probably more then and you know, 21, so I kind of thought the world was always going to be better in the future and changed in the most positive and fabulous ways. So it definitely seemed like a democratic force for good.
3: Did you have that hope, Ronan, that sort of slightly hippie feeling of release and endless possibility?
5: I think Martha was well ahead of her time. I mean, to put it in context, PipeX provided the first digital dial-up service in 1992. You know, so if you take 1997, 1998, the future may have been discovered, but it wasn't well distributed at that time. And I think most of us probably saw our first exposure to the internet actually in an office environment where some uh, uh, office uh, connectivity had been provided and it was more a B2B tool in in some respects or an education and and, uh, academic tool in those days. I think what really, and uh, forgive me, I'll go back to the XDA, but when you suddenly realise that actually you get um, Encyclopedia Britannica in your pocket and you can have it with you all the time, then you start to think about, well, what if... And and for me, certainly, what this revolution is all about is we're creating an information uh, economy. And in the past, information was power. This is democratizing access to information. And we've had an agricultural revolution, an industrial revolution. And in each case, you have a technology shift followed by a fundamental behavioural and societal shift. We haven't yet seen, in my view, the behavioural and societal shift that will be occasioned by digital. So I think we're actually on the technology curve. The big change is yet to come.
3: That's what we're talking about today, right? that shift. Alan, do you think the internet could have evolved in any other way than the way we know it today?
6: Well, I, I, I don't know enough about the technology. I, I think that the, the big thing that's changed uh, as a, just as a user is, well, two big things. One, one is the thing that Ronan was talking about, which is, the, the, as a journalist, obviously, you're interested in, in the, the messages you're sending out, but I was always terribly interested in what the messages would be that would come back. Uh, and. The, the, the Web 2.0, when people could talk to each other and publish, as, as well as respond to us, was for me almost more important than the birth of the internet. And I think Ronan's right that we we haven't begun to realise what that means yet. Um, as, as a user, there, there was a kind of a heady moment early on when, if you put a, a search term into Google, you got something back that wasn't somebody trying to sell you something. Um, uh, and, and that was sort of <coughs> wonderful. It was, you know, for people just interested in, in, in sort of finding things out. Uh, and now, nearly always, any search term is, 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 is now part of a commercial world of, of people trying to sell you stuff. Uh, and it would be wonderful to try and um, find an alternative. Maybe there is one um, an alternative Google in, in, in which was more about knowledge and less about straight commerce.
3: Corey, what about you? Do you think it could have evolved in an entirely different way and retained some of that openness and sense of
7: boundless freedom there? Well, I mean, I'm not a historical determinist, so yes, of course. Lots of different things could have happened. Uh, I mean, I believe in the adjacent possible, so people have ideas for things like airplanes at periodic intervals through the whole of human history, but eventually some of those ideas get realized because we have material science and physics to kind of catch up with it, which is what when people say you get railroads when it's railroading time, they don't mean that there's a mystical railroading energy in the air. They just mean that we have now attained the point where when that idea occurs with its on-scheduled regularity, that some of the people to whom it occurs will be able to figure out how to make it a reality. So, I don't think we, we run on rails. I think we We have lots of moments in our history where things have gone well and somewhere they've gone poorly. Uh, When the World Wide Web Consortium uh, decided that members who participated in standard setting would have to abjure web patents so there would be no toll gates for (coughs) producing web technology, that was a key juncture. It could have gone a different way, it could have been much worse. Um, But on the other hand, when the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was passed in 98 uh, and when the European Union Copyright Directive was passed in 2001. Both of them produce extraordinarily bad policy that um, uh, if we hadn't had it, I think things would be much better. They both provide for, among other things, an unaccountable system of arbitrary censorship and a rule prohibiting uh, disclosing security vulnerabilities in technologies that we rely on, which could have produced, uh, which which does present a a clear and present danger to us uh, and which is only going to get worse unless we can do something about it.
3: Data is the big subject, isn't it? And, uh, Martha, I wonder, you've spoken in your Dibbleby lecture about a sense that there should be a, a Magna Carta for the Internet, um, which would presumably involve data, but on a broader sense, how much do you think government should intervene and in supervise the big web companies, try and control them, guard our rights, and so forth? How, do you think government should be more involved than it is?
4: I think government should do three things because i would argue that uh, we're actually having a bit of a crisis right now you know i just got stuck in hideous traffic coming across london you know london has an infrastructure problem but the web has a much much bigger internet sorry has a much much bigger infrastructure problem if you like and i think the government should focus on three things firstly we have got to improve the state of our digital infrastructure urgently You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that South Korea knock it out the park all the time in terms of the economy and productivity, partly because they have that super-fast infrastructure. That's one big piece of the puzzle, and somewhere that government could be more aggressive. Secondly, we have an absolute crisis in gender on the internet. Massive, huge, enormous. The percentage of women in the tech and creative industries, I saw a report just this week, have gone down. Hmm. There are now nearly double the percentage of women in parliament that is probably marginally older than the tech sector. Double. It's a disaster. It's a disaster because power, money, product design, everything is worse and imbalanced and asymmetrical. So that's the second thing where I think they should intervene. And the third thing is in a thank you. In a broader a broader, a broader skills crisis, which I, you know, worked on for a while, and, you know, we still have massive issue with coding jobs that we need to fill and a massive issue in broader digital skills, let alone the skills of our establishment and parliamentarians. And they are three, to me, very tangible areas that government could intervene. They don't even have to touch a big tech company to make a big shift in those areas.
3: Ron, how do you, you, you must have a lot to do with government, really. Um, how do you find... I mean, one of the things that strikes me about government is... Most of the people making decisions are my age, and I absolutely know nothing, by the Uh, way. The ISC, which is the Intelligence Security Committee, I noted in the last government, had an average age of 59, and I don't think was one member of that committee that understood the issues. What's your experience of the sort of commercial air?
5: Look, I I think that's entirely right. I think we have to break it into two or three areas, though. So um, I think the management of critical national infrastructure needs to be done holistically digital infrastructure is an essential ingredient we're happy, and it's not a criticism of HS2, but we're happy to spend 54 billion pounds on it. For a 10th of that, you would transform the digital infrastructure. The good or value-added product that will be most distributed around our economy in the next 20 years is not people going uh, an hour faster to Manchester. It's data, and yet we're not willing to provide the infrastructure for it. Second thing I would say is, it's not just about the management of, so I saw John Whittingdale this morning and talk about how we make sure that we all have better uh, connectivity but one of our challenges is uh, I went to the common select committee in 2012 to talk about spectrum and talk about rural coverage and John and I were admitted on record that more MPs write to him and me asking for a mast not to be built in their local community than ask for a mast to be built now that has changed and I think the third thing going back to the last point that Mark made is this is not about technology. What we have is we have an analog society and we have a digital opportunity and we're singularly failing to match talent to opportunity in the way we educate and prepare our young people. And it's not just the education system itself, but it's parents, it's people of my age who have analog ambitions for their children. Simply the jobs that exist today and will for the next 10 years just didn't exist when those people went to school or went through university. So we have a fundamental change, and it goes back to my overarching point is the pace of technology change has massively outstripped the pace of societal and behavioral change. That's the crisis, not a technology crisis. Alan, you've had slightly more difficult relations with government over the
3: last three or four years. Um, I wonder... I know a lot about it because I was you know, with you on, on much of it, but I wonder what you feel about government's true role. I mean. The internet presumably does have to be policed in some sense, but I wonder if you and then Corry could comment on the exact, the limits to that sort of supervision.
6: Well, I think there's been a missing stage in the debate. Um, so we, we, we seem to be operating on the basis that the digital world operates to completely different rules from the pre-digital world, and that, that just seems odd to me. So as an example, uh, over, over centuries, Various groups and organizations, institutions, professions have built up uh, conventions uh, about what is confidential. Uh, Doctors, uh, priests, uh, MPs, lawyers, uh, journalists. They they all for good reasons believe that their conversations with their sources, their clients, their patients, their constituents uh, are confidential uh, and that's been built up over two or three hundred years. And somebody this year in the Home Office decided that actually that no longer counted, uh, and that the, uh, the police on the, on the sanction of the Home Office would no longer respect any forms of privilege. That seems to be such a fundamental thing in, in which is just somebody saying, well, this new world, because we can do this, we, we can abolish this, uh, we're gonna give ourselves the power to do that. Uh, And that in the year in which we celebrate Magna Carta is such a profound change. uh, And I just wonder why nobody thinks even to discuss it. Why do do we assume that that the new world is going to be different from the old world uh, and that digital is somehow this magical word which completely alters the relationship between government and citizen?
3: Laurie, you you had a very impassioned telephone call the other day with me and Hannah of, of Intelligence Squared. You were talking about how we can own the future still. It's not all negative, and, and, and I certainly believe that, but would, would you enlarge on that?
7: Sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm a, uh, I, I give a lot of talks about the future of technology and the present day of technology and what, what I think we should do. And at the end, somebody always puts their hand up and says, are, are you optimistic? And, you know, I'm a science fiction writer, and so I understand that predicting the future is a mugs game. Uh, Science fiction writers are terrible at it, and science fiction writers who try are like drug dealers who sample their own product. It never goes well. Uh, But besides that, optimism and pessimism are, are largely irrelevant to what we should do. I mean, if you were convinced that in the future the internet was going to go from being the nervous system of the 21st century into being the world's most perfect and enduring surveillance apparatus that will harden our power relationships in ways that will deny opportunities to everyone save the tiny elites who are currently on top, you would get up every morning and get out of bed and do everything you could to change that fact. And if you were convinced that the internet wouldn't do that, you would get up every morning and get out of bed and do everything you could to ensure that fact. Right? So it doesn't change your course of action, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic. So rather than optimism or pessimism, I'm a great fan of hope. Uh, hope is the idea that the future is up for grabs, that um, what we do today changes what happens tomorrow. Hope is why if your ship sinks in the middle of the sea, you tread water, not because most people whose ship sinks get picked up, but because everyone who's been picked up treaded water until rescue arrived. It's a necessary but insufficient precondition for a better world and if you were along with someone else who couldn't kick for themselves you'd put their arms around your neck and you would kick for them because that's what we do when we have hope it gives us the strength to carry along the people around us and people who know and care about this stuff maybe in a minority today we have not reached peak surveillance by any means but we reach peak indifference to surveillance there will never be a moment at which fewer people are concerned about these issues than today and so those people will start kicking with us if we keep if we keep at it if we keep them afloat until the time arrives so i do think that the future is ours to influence if not to determine and that um when things look worst that's the moment at which you can least afford to give up
3: Uh, the last thing we you know we have to rush through this afternoon or lots of things i'd like to ask the panel Uh, I would love to hear from the next hour and a half, but we can't. Um, I'd like to ask them, what is the single pleasure, the quintessential pleasure for them of using the web? Ronan first.
5: Uh, I have a 21-year-old daughter who's at university in Australia, and I get to be with her through the internet by using uh, FaceTime or Skype. That's the best thing for me.
3: Well,
4: Uh, I walk with a stick. I can honestly say I'd have no clothes, no food. I'd be completely disorganised if it wasn't for the internet because it enables you to be at much more peak physical capacity than you actually are. It's quite profoundly personal in that way for me.
3: The thing I don't like is when I announce something at dinner and my children, who may be in the audience, or my wife fact-checks me immediately.
6: (laughs) (laughs) That I hate. Alan, what about you? Well, I I love that because I have this... a terrible memory, just a terrible memory. And you, if you've got a phone in your pocket, you don't need a memory. Um, and Google is a sort of hard drive that I carry around with me, and all the problems I had of not being able to learn dates or kings and queens of England, um, <laughs> I'm now super smart, because I have it all there. Or actually, even, I Apparently, have it all there, but um, I, I haven't learned how to use it. I was going to ask yet. you about yeah. wearables.
3: Yeah. Apparently, pay, people who are given an intelligence test uh, or rather, an, a knowledge test, um, were all asked of those that remembered um, from their brains and those who used Google, and the people who used Google thought they were more intelligent than the people who remembered simply using their brain, which is interesting how quickly we've absorbed this. Yeah. Cory, what's your great pleasure?
7: So, I, I love this business of having an outboard brain. Uh, you know, I, 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 just as having a calculator liberates you from being a shitty human spreadsheet and allows you to do real maths, Having the internet liberates you from being a shitty human encyclopedia and allows you to do real synthetic thought. Every interesting thing that crosses my transom, and there's a seemingly infinite number of them, I turn into a post that explains to strangers why it's interesting. This is powerfully mnemonic. It joins this kind of super dense cloud of of fragmentary ideas that kind of knock around in my subconscious, and eventually two of them glom together and nucleate and turn into novels or speeches or essays. Uh, it, it's it's wonderful to not have to bother yourself with the minutia and be able to look at bigger more synthetic questions that's a terrific way to end
3: and, and typically articulate well thank you panel thank you very much for a brilliant first session I'm keeping the time uh, the schedule so um, we're all going to go off and be replaced by somebody else <laughs>
8: well, thank you very
2: much so the first uh, of this session is going to be about artificial intelligence, it's called the good, the bad and the unimaginable. I know that I for one would be very disappointed if no one at any point mentions the Terminator films. Uh, so please, uh, welcome to the stage, uh, your chair, uh, he presents Radio 4's flagship science show Inside Science, Adam Rutherford and his panel.
1: We'll just sit
9: in Come on
1: up, come on up and sit Sit down. down. Okay, so um, thank you Rick, thank you everyone for coming. So the topic for debate is uh, artificial intelligence. We appear to be reaching some kind of cultural convergence, a sort of zenith of conversations, at least in public, about what artificial intelligence is and what it can do for us. There have been a spate of films over the last couple of years, some good, some absolutely terrible, things like Chappie and... Oh, Transcendence, uh, Age of Ultron, Ex Machina. So um, we've had a range of views expressed by some uh, not insignificant public figures such as Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates about the potential threats of artificial intelligence expressed in public. So the questions that arise from that are many, and we don't have that long, but we're gonna attempt to address some of them during that session. Things like, should we be concerned? Um, Are we heading for the singularity? We'll be talking about that. Uh, Will AIs be smarter, faster, and generally better than us? And therefore, are we destined to be subservient and possibly extinguished? by our non-human creations. Now, we will be taking questions at the end. There will be roving mics on the floor, so do come with your questions, and there are two mics uh, in the the cheap seats in the balcony. Um, So our panel, we have some of the finest human minds that are thinking about these questions currently. Uh, We have, so we're gonna do this in order from the far end. Reva Melissa Tez, who is a a transhumanist um, advocate, founder of the Berlin Singularity Group, um, she's a tech investment consultant and a writer on AI. Next to her, we have Murray Shanahan. He's a professor of cognitive robotics at Imperial College London. He's a, he was also the scientific advisor to the recent AI film Ex Machina, which is, in my humble opinion, the best AI film um, that has been yet made, not least because I was also the scientific advisor for it. <laughs> Um, Next to him we have Nick Bostrom, he's the author of uh, Superintelligence, groundbreaking sort of alarm bell book on artificial intelligence, professor of philosophy at Oxford. And to my immediate left we have Dan Glazer, who's a neuroscientist and director of the Science Gallery at King's College in London. So I think to start off with we need to get a couple of definitions out of the way. I described you, Reva, as a transhumanism advocate. Briefly, what is transhumanism?
0: Um, so I think that the first thing is that transhumanism isn't as weird as it sounds, and, and Nick is one of the founding fathers of this of this idea, that it's the idea that we have technology, we have the capabilities to advance humanity in a way that's um, not previously um, been established. There's things like super health, super longevity, living for a long time as healthy as possible, um, the, the extension of healthy lifespan, super happiness, um, the abolishment of suffering. Um, basically all the things that humanity has aspired for since... You know, I say in America, since the founding fathers, um, it sounds weird now to say transhumanism, but it should be the goals of humanity to live longer and extend it and expand it. So it's, it's just the idea of using technology to, to do that.
1: Okay, now, when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, when we talk about consciousness, these are, at best, fuzzy concepts when we're talking about humans, when we're talking about biology when we're talking about AI in terms, of, uh, in terms of robotics, the types of things that uh, you guys do. Murray, wh- what do we mean? What is artificial intelligence? What is the scope of the definition?
2: Well, I think, first of all, we have to distinguish between different senses of the word artificial intelligence. So. Uh, we have to distinguish between the kind of AI technology that's actually around us today and that might unfold over the next uh, five years or so, and the kind of thing we see in the movies, human-level AI. So these are, uh, are different kinds of things. So uh, the kind of thing that we have around us today is basically uh, the, the kind of technology that carries out tasks that we think of as, as needing intelligence when they're carried out by, by humans or, or carries out some aspect of such tasks. So we see examples in in personal assistants like Apple's Siri or Google now, Cortana. Self-driving cars are a great example. A slightly scary example is the potential of autonomous weapons. Um, And other examples are the use of machine learning technology with big data to try and understand better the um, buying habits and behavior of, of people based on large amounts of data about them. So those kinds of technologies um, are, are, are becoming very prominent. There's a lot of excitement about that kind of technology and a lot of investment in those sorts of areas and we're no doubt going to see a lot of impact uh, on our economy and society from that kind of technology in the not too distant future. Now in the more distant future, um, uh, maybe we will one day achieve human level artificial intelligence and, and what I mean by that, or to distinguish that from the first kind of AI, the first kind of AI is very specialist, it, it can only do one particular task typically, whereas humans are capable of doing an enormous variety of tasks and, and, uh, and learning new ones and indeed inventing whole new kinds of tasks. So a human level AI will be able to match humans in that kind of way, it will be a general, generalist. A human level AI is, is general uh, intelligence. And we really have no idea quite how to produce that kind of AI yet. This is something that we see in science fiction films. I suspect we may well manage it by the end of this century, but as yet we really don't know how to do it. There are several conceptual breakthroughs that are probably needed before we get there. When we do get there, um, then, really, all bets are off about how much impact that will have on society, society. and that's a very uh, interesting question to think about, which Nick has spent a lot of time thinking about. In fact.
1: I want to come on to, to what's going to happen in the future in, in just a minute with Nick, but I just want to turn to Dan because you were talking about human level intelligence and human level consciousness as being something which is in the not immediate but possible future. Dan, you're a, you're a biologist, you deal with, with real biological entities and the human brain. What can AI researchers learn from how we understand it, how the human brain works?
9: Well I think the first thing to say is that in a sense neurobiology and artificial intelligence are in the similar situation of being completely lost at the moment. So although there's huge amounts of investment in neuroscience, both in the US with the Big Brain Project and in Europe, uh, what we're doing is gathering huge amounts of data. But the domain is pretty much theoretical, which is to say that nobody has any idea what's actually going on. Very basic things like sleep, uh, like memory, Uh, like how anesthetics work, we have actually no theories about what's going on there. And so the amassing of data about real brains is analogous, it seems to me, to this huge Moore's Law-driven application of computing power to AI, but without any real sense of what might be happening, what the algorithms that are gonna give rise to the big breakthroughs are. And I have a, I mean, I'm pleased to say that I'm not the first person sitting on this stage today to advocate this, but it does seem to me that the problem with the problems we're looking at is that they're pretty male, and also they've forgotten about children. So, for years, chess was considered to be the most intelligent thing you could do. And we solved that. We solved it basically by doing exhaustive search or close to. We just looked at all the possible moves. And eventually, when the computer became fast enough to look forward far enough to outwit the grandmaster, then it could beat the grandmaster at chess. But computers are still stupid. And in fact, the things that computers find easiest to do are the things that we learn as adults and the, thing that men, the things that men are good at, warfare, uh, you know, running corporations, this kind of planning transport systems. Uh, what they're not good is the things that uh, children are good at. So uh, generating learning environments, there's a very famous experiment with mothers and daughters. Right? It's called the tongue protrusion test. And there was an original theory that babies were mirroring their mother's uh, gestures very early on, as early as a few weeks. Why? Because when mummy sticks her tongue out, the baby sticks its tongue out too. And everyone says that that's mirroring very early. It turns out that the kid is not mirroring the mother, because if the mother goes, "Eh," then the kid sticks its tongue out. So what it's doing is expressing its excitement at being stimulated by sticking its tongue out, And the mother misreads that as mirroring, and therefore spends lots of time nurturing the child. And babies are very good mechanisms for generating learning environments from the people around them. It comes earlier, uh, older children, with the why question. So what we know, why? Why? So what we need to become better at is understanding these very basic things. How do we generate a, a learning environment and how do we understand better what other people are thinking? And when we get these mind-reading techniques better, we'll be able to have artificial intelligence on a firmer footing and not just go straight for the grown-up male stuff. Last point, what is it that women are better at than men? I mean, men are better at chess, perhaps. Perhaps they're better at being CEOs of tech companies. But there's a very interesting study from Anita Woolley and colleagues that was written up quite recently. If you do the IQ test on individuals, okay, you get a score. What happens if you do the IQ test on groups? So you form a group of people and you get them to solve an IQ test together. Okay? What is the quality of the group that makes it as a group most intelligent? What they all need to be good at is eye-reading. Eye-reading is knowing what's going on in people's minds by looking at their eyes. That's getting mental states and inferring them from their actions. Women are much better at that than men. And the principal thing you can do if you want a group to act intelligent is to fill it with women. Actually, the most direct correlation on the study from Nita and Woolley and colleagues, if you want to measure the IQ test of a group, the biggest predictor is not the IQs of the individuals, but the proportion of women in that group. When you start to understand that... The intelligence and the brain power that women deploy every day is something that we should be trying to model and uh, and and uh, drive from an artificial point of view. I think we're more likely to make progress.
0: Dan, I'll take you on, on chess. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I'm I'm
1: choosing to ignore the comment about uh, CEOs of uh, tech companies. Perhaps you can you can beat Dan up later. Um, This, I guess, is directed to Murray and and Reva, but in terms of looking at how human intelligence works and the types of models that psychologists and neuroscientists look at trying to understand the human brain and human behaviour, is this the type of thing that AI researchers are modelling or should be modelling? Reva, well...
0: Oh, well, we were just talking about this about two minutes ago, and... um, the analogy that I have around neuroscience and um, in related, in relation to AI is that when we tried to build planes we kind of looked at birds and we built these kind of like weird flapping things, and then we built a principle of what flight should be, and then we, we managed to conquer what a plane should be and I kind of think the same I mean I think the understanding and mapping the brain is a very valuable thing, but the, um, the kind of non domain specific principle of intelligence hasn 't quite been conquered yet, and if we can find something that 's not neurospecific i mean we 're also different in our you know, neuro makeup and um, the way that AI is being done is we're following such traditional recipes. We're looking at the brain, we're looking at like, deep learning or reinforcement learning, plus some part of the brain. And um, I think I agree with Murray and, and some other people on the panel that it might be some real outlier view that, that actually cracks AI. Because um, it's, it's not like anything that's ever been done before. We don't have a, a true definition of what intelligence is.
1: But do we have enough of an understanding of human consciousness to even model it in experimental circumstances, let alone create artificial versions?
2: Uh, well, first of all, I think we should, we should be very clear about distinguishing between consciousness and intelligence because they're not the same thing. We can easily imagine building an artifact which is, can behave in a very intelligent way and perhaps doesn't have consciousness. And conversely, we, we have plenty of, of conscious... Uh, creatures in the world who are uh, certainly conscious and capable of suffering for example but not necessarily that intelligent compared to humans so they're, they're very different things but if i could just respond to uh, to dan's earlier uh, remarks it's so certainly i think you're absolutely right um, and agree with everything you said. Um, uh, but uh, in defence of, of, of AI, I should point out that it's a vast subfield of artificial intelligence. There's epigenetic robotics, or developmental robotics, as it's so called. There's effective computing, which, uh, uh, so, which looks at these kinds of topics as well. So it's, a, so it's certainly um, a, a perspective which is very much adopted by a great many AI researchers.
9: But I'm slightly worried. You know, I mean, it's, it's quite fashionable AI at the moment, and, and there are lots of people. My old friend Jeff Hinton, you know, being acquired by Google, there's lots of money coming in but I think that there's a worry that the tech crisis about gender balance may superimpose itself onto the AI uh, problem, it feels to me as if they're addressing the wrong problems and in a sense the tech, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, product has been selling us problems, uh, solutions to problems that most of us don't have like how to do sociability without eye contact, there are quite a lot of men who have problems with that but it's not a general problem and the solutions which people are coming up with are, and they're selling us to are problems which most of us I think don't generally have
1: Nick, Murray talked about uh, the immediate future, but also the long-term future. Your your book is largely about what possibly could happen and the things that people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking have been worried about in public. What do you think is going to happen?
8: Well, I think that AI will gradually grow in capabilities, perhaps slowly and incrementally uh, at first, and perhaps for a long time. But at some point, we will figure out the basic algorithms that generate general intelligence in humans. The same powerful learning algorithms that enable us to learn not just one job, but any job. Uh, The same powerful planning algorithms that make it possible for us to tackle like almost universal um, set of problems. Um, So once we have that sorted out, I think then we will have machines that are human-level general intelligence, and I'm quite agnostic as to how far we are from that point. Uh, In fact, I think nobody really has any uh, good evidence for predicting that this will or will not happen by any very specific date. We did a survey of some of the world's leading AI experts two years ago, and one of the questions we asked there was, by what year do you think there's a 50% probability that we will have human-level machine intelligence? And the median answer to that was 2040 or 2050, depending on precisely which group. But with a large uncertainty on either side, it could happen much sooner or much later. But if and when we do reach that point, I think we will soon thereafter have superintelligence. the machines that are not just slightly better at us at some tasks, but that radically outperform us across all complex intellectual domains, much like we outperform the chimpanzees or or like the rabbits. And so with that kind of enormous intelligence comes the potential for enormous power. With that intelligence, you could reach technological maturity quickly, doing the inventing and the science on digital timescales. So um, this transition to the machine intelligence era, I think, um, has the potential to be a pivotal moment in human history, perhaps the most important event that will ever have happened on, on this planet, and, and the, the ultimate outcome might depend, in some scenarios, quite sensitively on the precise initial conditions, the exact design of the first uh, entity that achieves the superintelligence. Do,
1: do you think it is the accumulation? I mean, you, you sort of uh, you, you alluded to it just a minute ago, but is it? Is it, uh, Reva talked about how, how um, you know, we can build AIs that are very good at chess, but the transferable learning and deep learning is not something that AIs are really capable at the moment, is the main barrier that we need to accumulate uh, various skills and various intelligent behaviours into one entity.
8: Well, I, I think it's more likely that there is one or a small number of fundamental tricks that maybe you need to flesh out with a lot of details, but a relatively limited set of basic mechanisms that generate intelligence in humans. Um, AI used to be, um, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, really about programmers putting commands in a box, as you would hard-code facts or features, and then the AI could perform some simple inferences on that. Uh, and these systems were useful for some limited purposes, but they didn't scale, they were brittle. If you put in one wrong thing, the whole thing just turned out nonsense. But today, AI is really much more about learning. Um, it's about designing algorithms and computational architectures that from raw perceptual data, like just pixels on a screen, let us say, a large data set, can themselves figure out uh, what the relevant features are, build out context, complex representations and, and learn to detect patterns in this. Um, and I think it's this kind of uh, learning AI that is most likely to eventually reach human
9: level. But I'm sure it feels very much to me as if you're attacking the problem at the wrong end because it's not, it doesn't seem to me plausible either that there are a small number of simple algorithms which if we find them, will get intelligence or that what we need to do is have more and more powerful systems to do it. I mean, one of the really striking things about humans, more than chimpanzees, is how helpless we are for so long after we're born. And it seems to me that the reason for that is because we are constructing the architecture of the machine, if you want to call it a machine, through experience. The idea that you have a big purpose, um, you know, off-the-shelf... A computing machine with huge amounts of, of bits and bytes and lots of inputs, and that will run an algorithm that will make us intelligent is fanciful. We need basic experience, we need to build it from the bottom up in terms of learning, and, and it's this uh, helplessness in the face of the world which we need to study first. Once we've understood how that gives rise to the thinking machine, yeah. then we can look at the yeah. algorithms yeah. that impinge it. You
8: like could your... reply, reply briefly. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're agreeing. So, the basic idea with a learning algorithm is that it starts out helpless and then after you learn you become competent uh, just like a human child does so you don't start out with all of these skills there but you start out with the ability to acquire those skills that's what learning is Uh,
1: in terms of what uh, ai researchers are doing currently murray this is a question for you um they, they seem to be very focused on individual tasks so we you know we're a long way from what both dan is talking about in a biological context and what nick is talking about in a in a broader context, but what sort of thing? Let's talk about the positives about current AI before we talk about its, uh, our exi- existential threats.
2: Mm. Well, um, of course, a lot of AI researchers at the moment are interested in uh, in the kinds of short-term, immediate applications of the, of the sort of technology that I, was, that I was describing, especially because there's a lot of investment interest in that <laughs> at the moment. So, So there's a lot of incentive to look at that stuff. But uh, if you look at the people who who are interested in artificial general intelligence or human human level AI as a longer term goal, then I think pretty much uh, uh, all of them would agree very much with that perspective, that it's all about doing things from a bottom up, learning things from scratch without building in anything in advance uh, about what, or very little about what the world is like out there. And um, and if we look, for example, at Google DeepMind who are one uh, uh, little, company who certainly have that as, a, as, as an aim, then that's very much their, uh, their philosophy. They're interested in learning everything from scratch without building anything into uh, their, their systems about what kind of world they're gonna learn about. At the moment they're still looking at somewhat Toy examples, but, but if you take that into, a, into a, um, the kind of domain that a, a human child or a, an, uh, or a young animal has to deal with, then I think that's the right, okay. the right kind of approach.
1: Okay, look, we, I think we've pretty much sorted this entire field out in the 20 <laughs> minutes that, that we've had, but um, if, if there are any questions, stick your hand up and a microphone will come to you if you're on this floor, um, so I can see there's one there. If you're in the balcony, then go to the microphone. Um, <laughs> Let's uh, let's take a couple of questions, and then I want to just briefly ask all, the whole panel about um, existential threats, as as is the title.
3: Hi there, uh, David Benningson from a company, big data company called Signal. Um, I just wanted to know um, what you guys thought about the role that ethics plays in all of this. Obviously. <clears throat> You're talking about such a major impact that this technology in this field can have on the world, and I, I know that DeepMind incorporated an ethics board into their into their company after they were acquired. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about
1: your thoughts on that. Who wants to have a go at ethics? Because that's a really easy subject. I,
0: I mean, I'm just going to say that the three of us, for sure, were at the um, there was a big AI safety conference at the beginning of this year. AI safety has become one of the most prominent areas of AI research, I think, right now. So we're thinking about ethics more than we are thinking about the first principles of building it. I think um, I think that Nick has done an amazing job at bringing attention to that, and definitely with, with the guys at DeepMind and etc. So I think that, I don't know, I think that ethics is probably the biggest, one of the biggest areas of AI research right now, if not even maybe too much, and it's, 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 the, it's probably the most written about thing right now in terms of AI. Not it's not about whether or not it's being done. Is
1: it, I mean, it's fabulous that we're thinking about this now. It's, I mean, this is early doors for talking about morality and ethics for things that haven't, that haven't really been... Well, they've been conceived, but we're a long way from actually building.
8: Yeah, I, mean, I, I would say that I think the ethical issues look very different depending on whether we're looking at near-term incremental capabilities in which case the ethical questions are kind of continuous with other ethical questions in new technologies, the like drones, should they be anonymous, privacy, all of these kind of things. So these are legitimate and worthwhile questions to think about and to debate, but I think the questions that arise if and when we get machines that achieve the same general intelligence as humans have are very different and quite unique. It's entirely new kinds of ethical questions that arise here. And also questions of even if you had some views about what the ethics should be, like what kind of outcomes would be desirable, also big, major research questions in how you would actually implement that in a machine, how you would create a machine that could learn um, what human intentions are, that could learn what ethics is, and then actually be motivated to pursue those those values. That's a big, new, open research area that I think is going to turn out to be very important.
1: Okay, uh, there was another question on this side, I think. Someone's got the mic right at the very back.
4: Go ahead. Um, just not so much a question, as a comment. Um, Brief, if you will. Yep, there's a guy called E.O. Wilson, long dead, sociologist, I thought socio-something or other. In the 1950s, I think he said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and the technology of the gods. And it doesn't seem to me that much has changed since then. And that it may be to speak to to Daniel Glazer's point about maybe the, the, the... AI you're talking about fills the gap of the medieval institutions and their inefficiencies, but does it address the fact that correlation is not the same as understanding?
1: I don't think E.O. Wilson is dead, actually. I know it's he's not, not. but, Sorry, um, it's but uh, thank, thank
9: you, though. But, but it's, a, <laughs> it's a sign of his significance in culture that yes. he's thought to be. Um, yes. yeah, it's very I mean, old. I, mean, I, so. I do think, if, if I can address the two points together, I think that retrofitting ethics, or having an ethics committee on the side, is doing the whole thing exactly back to front. One of the things that children learn early on is how they ought to behave. And I'm not going to go Freudian, but this development of a a supervisory, you know, of a superego, what they should or shouldn't do is critical to the development of an intelligent human. And it feels to me as if, and, and this is why I'm at Science Gallery London, that you've got to bring in non scientific domains, you've got to bring in fact non experts into the conversation, not only because there's a democratic deficit, and not only because this stuff is too important to be left to the scientists and the technologists, but because the answers to the important questions about why we're intelligent and how to make machines more intelligent, will arise in situations where we can speak to the arts, where we can involve young people in decisions, and where we can have proper interdisciplinary conversations. So we need more spaces like that and less of the kind of algorithm bashing and, uh, and, and theoretical stuff, although that's important. It needs to be embedded in a, in, a, in a proper view of human culture.
1: Okay, we've got one minute left. So it needs to be an incredibly facile, quick answer to the question. Uh, And I want to go down the panel, starting with Reva. Does artificial intelligence pose an existential threat to humankind? You have 25 seconds.
0: Yes. Murray.
1: (laughs) Maybe.
8: (laughs) (laughs) No?
9: (laughs) Probably, well, but also an existential (laughs) hope at the same time.
1: Yes, Um, maybe, probably, yes.
9: Uh, I, I can't resist the gag. So AI, as you men, many of you know, in, in the world, if you Google it, has two different significances. One is artificial intelligence, and the other is artificial insemination. And I just have to say that in both cases, I'm more in favour of the natural kind.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that's as I say. I think we've really sorted that whole issue out. So well, you guys can just stop working and retire from now on. So if you could just, uh, I could just thank the panel. Um, Dan Glazer, Nick Bostrom, uh, Murray Shanahan and Reva Melissa Tez. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.